sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you here are those used to research our show, and the uh, individual to my right here, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from these uh, books. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So we are we are really going to do this with a fire burning in the fireplace when it's 80 degrees out? That's the plan. Does this have to do with that gin podcast you've been complaining about? No. Oh my god. I just realized the other night after we heard those noises and you were out in the yard with a flashlight for hours. I thought you were looking for Mr. Petrovich, but I was wrong. It wasn't ours. You thought Aaron Mankey was in the yard. No, not necessarily. He probably would have sent someone. I just think it's interesting that the hidden gin just happened to launch a month after our gin episode. He has six other shows now besides Lore, and he wants more. How do we know he doesn't have tentacles reaching out for us? So, you think he's... Stealing your topics. Maybe not the topics or content. It, it could be the format or the chit-chat, the music, the sound effects. How would you like to suddenly find out about another show with somebody else playing you? Oh, I wonder who that would be. Who would you say? I've been compared to Ingrid Bergman. Really? I know she's dead, but that's just who comes to mind. I don't know much about new movies. Mother didn't believe in them. She thought they were low-quality entertainment for low-quality people, and too suggestive. Well, I, I can't find certain books. Things are moved. Post-its have been removed. I don't know. I'm just taking precautions. Lord knows someone could probably get in through the coal chute down in the basement. As I see it, the fireplace is one place I can take control. No one's going to be putting bugs down the chimney with a fire burning. You can light your fires, but please don't ask me again to hang those black covers on the windows. No one can see in here as it is, and then cutting the light out will make it like a tomb. How is that a problem? It's just so dark. It just... Wait a minute. Do you think they might be able to use computers to recreate Ingrid Bergman? Let's just start the show. You can do so much with computers nowadays. So, uh, Aaron Menke, if you're listening, this is episode 53, Gallows Lore. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. I've been mentioning our new rewards lately, but Instead of me talking about them, we'll have some uh, feedback from those who actually received them at the end of our show. 
First I hung me daddy Away, boys, away And then I hung me mammy So hang, boys, hang Oh, yes, I hung me mother Away, boys, away Me sister and me brother So hang, boys, hang Calls me Hangin' Johnny. Oh, we had to start with a bit of gallows humor, of course. This from sailors of the 19th century. The sea shanty, Hanging Johnny, was rather free form and therefore ideally suited to accompany tasks of unknown duration. Just add a name to anyone you might want to hang to lengthen the song to match the task at hand. But however many people hanging Johnny might string up on his gallows, he could never equal the number of men hung by Jack Ketch, or at least not the uh, Jack Ketch of folklore. Also known as John Ketch or Richard Jacquet, the real Jack Ketch was the official executioner of London from 1663 to 1678. Details of his life before that are fuzzy, he probably came from Ireland, and he probably has spent some time in London's Marshalsea prison. But long after his death, his name remained synonymous with hangman. For generations, a Jack Ketch might tie a Ketch's knot or Ketch's necklace around the condemned's neck, and then he would catch him. At the end of the rope, the convulsing victim would be dancing Ketch's jig. This reputation broadened so that any wily old fiend, or even the devil himself, might receive the nickname Jack Ketch, and naughty English children would be warned by parents of a visit by Jack Ketch, who would uh, apparently come down the chimney, according to one source I find, a book from 1877. Tales told of Ketch set a pattern for those told of many future executioners. He was cheered by crowds when the condemned was uh, particularly despised and when all went smoothly, but if there were blunders, or if the condemned were regarded as folk hero, as many larger-than-life criminals often were, Ketch was despised. His reputation was further darkened by rumors of excessive drink, and the fact that he would accept bribes to ensure a speedy, painless death, or, even worse, bribes offered by enemies of the condemned to ensure the opposite. Most executions performed by Ketch were hanging, Hanging or strangulation was the common mode of execution since it was brought to Britain by the Saxons. The axe or sword was reserved only for those of higher birth, so Ketch's skills as a headsman were not so well rehearsed. One who experienced this was William Lord Russell, who went to the block in 1683 for a plot to assassinate Charles II. Sadly, the tip he presented Ketch to ensure that quick and painless beheading was badly invested. Ketch's first blow sunk into Russell's shoulder, and it took two further blows to hack off the noble's head. Two years later, when the Duke of Monmouth was executed for leading the rebellion against James II, he presented Ketch the usual tip, promising more to be provided by his servant if the deed were well done. As he kneeled for the blow, the Duke was said to have whispered, Do not serve me as you did my Lord Russell. I have heard you struck him three or four times. Sadly, this time it took five. 
the crowd jeered and Tetch threw down his axe and was forced to resort to using a knife to carve the Duke's head from his spine. It could be that the Duke's enemies offered Ketch a bit of money to draw out the suffering, or perhaps he was just on practice, or extremely drunk, as many speculated. Whatever the cause, this event fixed forever the hangman's reputation as a brute and butcher. A particularly strange and long-lasting legacy the executioner left was in the Punch and Judy show. Who am I? Jack Ketch, the Eggman, is my name. Mr. Punch, I don't need to hang you by the neck for your mean and wicked. Jack Ketch is a traditional character, or uh, was in less sensitive times. Ketch will show up to execute Punch for killing Judy and their baby and the crocodile, who tends to be part of these things. But Punch has trouble following Ketch's instructions. You just put your head through the noose like that. No, like that. And he finally frustrates the hangman into demonstrating it all himself. And so Ketch ends up as yet another person Punch has murdered. Sometimes the hangman is then crammed into a coffin, and traditionally that show would finish with that little prop coffin turned over to reveal what's painted on the other side. The end. Ah, the night before Larry was stretched, then the boys, they all paid him a visit. A bit in their sacks till they fetched, for they sweated their duds till they risen. In one form or another, this Irish execution ballad dates back to the 1780s and uses phrases from a special dialect spoken in the criminal underworld at the time, something called criminal cant. Uh, stretched here, of course, refers to hanging and was also used in the phrase the Tyburn Stretch, referring to the Tyburn Gallows, an area near the northwest corner of Hyde Park in London where the city's hangings took place from the 12th century up to 1782. The rumbler jugged off from his feet, and he died with his face to the city. It was synonymous with hangings, and Londoners spoke of the Tyburn jig, as with the Ketch's jig, or the condemned uh, taking a leap at Tyburn was another phrase. Nothing to do with Tyburn here, but launched into eternity was also a popular expression for ending it this way. Turned off was another phrase that happens to paint a picture of how these hangings were performed at the time. What I mean to say is that in these early days, there was no clean vertical drop, no trap doors. The body would turn or do a swinging, turning twist off its life-sustaining support. This could be a ladder pulled away or a cart driven out from underneath the condemned. In 1571, however, a permanent structure was built in the location, a triangular configuration of three crossbeams and posts known as the Tyburn Tree, sometimes called the Triple Tree. It's a strange arrangement of three adjoining crossbeams, allowing for mass hangings when necessary. On June 23, 1649, two dozen prisoners, that is eight cartloads, were simultaneously dangled on the tree. While Tyburn served as London's designated gallows, there was one exception. Pirates and smugglers were hung at what was known as 
execution dock along the Thames in Wapping in East London. That is, they were hung and left to hang to encourage good citizenship among those coming and going by ship. Actually, it wasn't only pirates and smugglers who were left hanging. Even in normal hangings of the day, the condemned was left dangling for at least a half hour to ensure death. Since this isn't the days of long drops and trap doors and broken spines, hanging meant death by strangulation, a slower process taking usually five to eight minutes to be complete. And all of that would be in an ideal case, but on Christmas Eve in 1705, the hanging of a burglar, John Smith, did not fit that pattern. A lack of crowd control resulted in friends and family rushing in to offer Smith assistance. Some tried to support him to prevent strangulation, while others pulled on his legs to shorten his suffering. The botched process had the rest of the crowd calling for a reprieve, which was granted, earning the condemned man the nickname Half-Hanged Smith. Asked about his brush with death, Smith reported, I remember a great pain caused by the weight of my body. The spirits were in a great uproar pushing upwards when they got into my head. I saw a great blaze of glaring light that seemed to go out of my head in a flash. Then the pain went. When I was cut down, I got such pins and needles pains in my head that I could have hanged the people who set me free. While he was granted his freedom following this, his return to burglary came quickly. After evading two further possible hanging sentences, he finally was sentenced to something he feared more, transportation to America. Uh, that is a colonial penal colony. Crowd control was always an issue with London's public hangings, something exacerbated by crowds drawn to the streets and gallows as the prisoner was transported in an open cart from Newgate Prison to Tyburn. What was normally a 20-minute trip during these processions could take up to three or four hours. Thousands turned out, hung out of windows, doors, and gates on route, sat on ledges, walls, and ladders, and cheered, jeered, or threw food or excrement. An armed escort of horsemen struggled to maintain a perimeter around the cart to prevent any last-minute attempts at rescue. One reason this procession took so long, because it is England, was that the cart stopped at pubs along the way. This drew business for the establishments in question, refreshed the guards, and helped calm and anesthetize the prisoner. It also allowed the condemned to express a heroically casual attitude to the whole affair, and essential for a successful, smooth hanging. Part of this heroic image involved the condemned dressing to the nines and even joking with customers in the pubs on route. I'll buy you a pint on the way back. Was a popular line. But as a precaution against any unsportsmanlike attempts to escape, these establishments had cellars functioning as detaining cells. In The Angel, a contemporary pub on the site of the old St. Giles Bowl, one can still see manacles fixed to a cellar wall for that purpose. These grim holidays were a major tourist attraction for the city, drawing spectators from other English towns and villages and drawing surprise commentary from foreign visitors. Along the route, and particularly at the gallows, vendors hawked food and broadsides detailing the condemned's crimes and, uh, rather inexplicably, their last dying speeches. In the tumult, these words in reality could only be heard by those close by. 
and those spots weren't free. They were rented out by a cowkeeper's widow known as Mother Proctor and dubbed Mother Proctor's Pews. Fun as it all sounds, these processions were ended in 1783 when executions were moved to Newgate Prison. The real estate in Tyburn had become too valuable to dedicate to gallows and mass gatherings, and the unruly spectacle of execution, one intended to serve as a cautionary example, had actually become a source of criminality, with pickpockets, fights, and damage to property thriving at these events. Executions were still public events on the grounds of Newgate Prison, which was on the site of what's now Old Bailey for our English listeners, or aficionados of English crime stories. And uh, Newgate hanging still did draw huge crowds. In fact, in 1807, some 40,000 spectators attended one hanging, at which dozens were killed when seating collapsed. By 1868, authorities had finally had enough, and executions were made private. One of Newgate's most famous hangmen, serving for 45 years beginning in 1829, was William Calcraft. He was not fondly regarded, at least not in more civilized circles. Uh, Charles Dickens, who had observed a number of his hangings, wrote, He should be restrained in his unseemly briskness to dispatch the felons without a bungle. He should also refrain from his briskness of jokes, his apparent oath, and of his brandy. Because we are still in the era of short drops and slow deaths, Calcraft tried to speed the process in a manner certain spectators found distasteful. He not only pulled on victims' legs, but would climb onto their shoulders and remain there, swinging this way and that. And for much of the crowd, this was a source of great hilarity. Loved or hated, Calcraft was something of a celebrity, traveling from London to perform executions elsewhere in England and Scotland, and like Jack Ketch, he was the subject of a so-called autobiography written by a third party. This um, 1847 volume, alternately reveling in and excoriating the man and his deeds, bore the colorful title, The Groans of the Gallows, etc. The Past and Present Life of William Calcraft, the living hangman of Newgate. It's hard to know what bits of truth it might contain, probably not a lot, but one sin it attributes to Calcraft has to do with the clothing of the condemned, which traditionally was a perquisite or perk of the hangman's job. And because of the custom of dressing well for the occasion, which might entail jewelry, this could be of some value. But Calcraft was willing to negotiate Loved ones could have the belongings returned, but they would have to buy them back at the hangman's price. The clothing of more notorious criminals had another buyer, Madame Tussauds. Their chamber of horrors particularly showcased notorious criminals, and the actual clothing worn in executions, well, that just added that extra element of realism. While generally reviled, Calcraft was occasionally defended as a well-meaning and genial family man who took a great interest in pet pigeons, rabbits, and other gentle creatures. The clothing of the condemned was not the only perquisite that came with the hangman's job. The rope itself could be sold off. 
cut into small pieces to satisfy more customers who uh, might value it for its uh, gruesome novelty and association with high-profile events or as a source of magic. While in uh, certain countries like France and Russia, the rope would uh, bring luck to gamblers, in Britain it had curative powers. According to a 1923 volume offering a uh, skeptical survey of folk medicine, Cures, the story of cures that fail by James J. Walsh, the hangman's rope was believed to have a powerful effect in turning the blood current, resulting in the cure of paralyzed or disabled limbs, or wasted fingers, or particularly the dead fingers of Renault's disease and other such nervous conditions. The portion which had constituted the noose had actually caused the death, commanded particularly good prices. And for those who might not be able to get an actual piece of hemp, there were other options. Sometimes a piece of the rope was soaked in water overnight, and the water took on curative properties, not unlike radium emanations in our day. Even better than contact with the hanging rope was contact with the hanged criminal himself. This was regarded as particularly restorative for those suffering from warts, or what were then called wens, or cysts, that is. Access to the freshly hanged body would be something the executioner controlled, granting uh, access by whim or in return for money or other favors, or by his assessment of the appropriateness of the cure, as the hangman was generally regarded as something of a medical expert in a field sometimes called gallows medicine. Richard Bentley, in an 1837 edition of his magazine, Bentley's Miscellany, describes the scene of a mass hanging. And um, remember here, turned off was one of those expressions, meaning was hanged. Within a few minutes after the convicts had been turned off, the patients were indulged with a choice of the individual culprit from those who had suffered. The hands of the corpse selected were untied by the executioner and gently moved backwards and forwards for about two minutes, which was supposed to be sufficient to effect a cure. I note from another source that nine strokes of the uh, lifeless hand was appropriate, but I'm sure this varied. In 1854, the visiting French author, Victor Hugo, relates such a scene in a letter written to the British Foreign Secretary on the subject of capital punishment. Epileptics came and could not be prevented from seizing the convulsive hand of the dead man and passing it frantically over their faces. Another visiting foreigner, the Swiss theologian and journalist Jakob Heinrich Meister, witnessed how the hangman was rushed by a mob, including a female in the crowd burying her breasts to ensure her advantage in contacting the corpse. Such spectacles, bare breasts or no, were generally and widely criticized to the extent that the counterfeiter John Binstead in 1815 begged the clergyman presiding at his execution to prohibit his lifeless hands being wagged over any diseased body parts that would be thrust at him after death. In 1888, the English writer Thomas Hardy placed this superstition, or a version of it, at the center of one of his most popular short stories, The Withered Arm. It's a great story and also includes references to uh, incubus folklore, and I don't want to spoil it by relating too much of the plot, but suffice it to say, the central character, Gertrude, whose arm has mysteriously begun to wither, 
seeks the advice of the local cunning man who advises her to seek out not the hand of the hanged man, but a more powerful spot, the hanged man's neck. Before he's cold, just after he's cut down, continued the conjurer impassively. How can that do good? It will turn the blood and change the constitution. Again, this notion of turning the blood. Hardy seems to know the tradition well, or at least he's done his research. So Gertrude seeks out Davies, the hangman, to make arrangements for this in advance. And we see Davies step into uh, that role of a folk doctor as he asks to examine the arm in question, which has been hidden by a veil. I like the look of the wound. It is as suitable for a cure as any I ever saw. Twas a knowing man that sent he, whoever he was. On the day of the execution, Gertrude falls into a sort of trance-like horror as she approaches the freshly killed corpse. She bared her poor, cursed arm, and Davies, uncovering the face of the corpse, took Gertrude's hand and held it so that her arm lay across the dead man's neck upon a line the color of an unripe blackberry which surrounded it. Gertrude shrieked. The turn of the blood, predicted by the conjurer, had taken place. Sorry, but I won't be telling you how the rest goes, but do look up the story. And there's also a good 1973 BBC dramatization on YouTube, if you prefer that. The hand of a hanged convict needn't be still warm and still attached to the wrist to uh, offer magical protection. It can be severed and dried, as is the case with the infamous Hand of Glory. This is a charm employed by burglars to ensure the success of their operations, one uh, generally understood to uh, put the occupants of the house into a deep sleep. While it's often imagined as a sort of candle that must be lit to affect its magic, five fingers functioning as uh, five wicks in a candelabra, that is. Uh, older stories more often presented as a sort of candlestick or candle holder into which a magically prepared candle is placed. One of the uh, oldest illustrations depicts it like a closed fist with a candle wedged between the knuckles, upright like a obscene middle finger, actually. While well-known in Britain and Ireland, this custom actually appears to originate in the continent, where it's uh, documented very early in France and very widely in Germany. The oldest and best-known instructions for creating your very own Hand of Glory can be found in the French Grimoire, or Collection of Magical Spells, and teachings known as the uh, Petit Albert. Its name references another grimoire, its uh, predecessor, the uh, Grand Albert, Allegedly, like this one, the work of uh, Albertus Magnus, the scholar uh, mentioned in our last episode's discussion of uh, alchemy. Published in 1706, it's clearly not the work of uh, this medieval scholar, but it's had a collection of disparate texts. Some uh, would be nearly contemporary at the time, and some perhaps dating back to that period. Um, in any case, your instructions. Take the hand, left or right, of a person hanged and exposed on the highway. Wrap it up in a piece of a shroud or winding sheet, in which let it be well squeezed to get out any small quantity of blood that may have remained in it. Then put it into an earthen vessel with saltpeter, salt, and long pepper, the whole well powdered. 
Leave if fifteen days in that vessel. Afterwards, take it out and expose it to the noontide sun in the dog days till it is thoroughly dry. The translation of some of the Latin words and phrases like Sesame of Lapland. It's a little dubious. And um, a dog days uh, mentioned here would mean around the end of July when the dog star Sirius rises in conjunction with the sun. And uh, on to how to use your freshly made hand of glory. The hand of glory is used as a candlestick to hold this candle when lighted. Its properties are that wheresoever anyone goes with this dreadful instrument, the persons to whom it is presented will be deprived of all power of motion. The Petit Albert also recommends that those interested in counter magic against the Hand of Glory should grease the threshold of their homes with a compound made from the gall of a black cat, the fat of a white hen, and the blood of the screech owl. Related stories from Germany offer some uh, variations on the theme. Jakob Grimm, in his uh, 1878 Deutsche Mythologie, uh, mentions thieves lighting the thumb of an unborn child. Adelbert Kuhn, in his 1859 book Legends, Customs, and Folktales from Westphalia, mentions the same, suggesting that this charm can also open locks. And in 1880s Legends, Folktales, and Customs from Mecklenburg, Karl Barch notes that the number of occupants of the house dictates the number of fingertips to be lit. And elsewhere you'll find the number of fingers allowing themselves to be lit as an indicator to thieves of how many are asleep inside. These uh, candles, Barch notes, were made from unborn children which had been cut from the womb. Therefore it occurred not infrequently that pregnant women were sold to bandits for high prices. He also offers the idea, something seen elsewhere, uh, that to defeat the Hand of Glory, it must be extinguished with milk. While this charm is usually said to simply uh, put occupants into a deep sleep, sometimes they are simply uh, frozen in their place, they can't move, or other times will make the thieves invisible. Or it may be that the light provided can only be seen by the intruders, giving them a sort of uh, night vision advantage over the uh, occupants. A few sources insist the extremity used must be the sinister uh, left hand or the hand that committed the crime. This is fairly rare, but it is very common that uh, the fat used to make the candle must come from the same corpse. Or um, less commonly, that hair must be plucked from that body to make a wick. A Hand of Glory tale, told in a number of places in England, can be found in Thomas and Catherine McCoy's 1883 volume about Yorkshire. It's uh, presented as a true story, recalled many years later, by the servant of the inn where it all takes place. So, one rainy night in October. There entered a bent figure dressed in a long cloak and hood. The last was drawn over her face and as she walked feebly to the armchair which Alderson pushed forward, the rain streamed from her clothing and made a pool on the oaken floor. She shivered violently, but refused to take off her cloak and have it dried. She asks only to rest beside the fire, 
refusing any food or drink offered by the uh, servant, Bella, and answers any questions posed with a few scant syllables. Although the voice was low and subdued, the girl fancied that it did not sound like a woman's. Presently, the wayfarer stretched out her feet to warm them, and Bella's quick eyes saw under the hem of the skirts that the stranger wore horseman's gaiters. Later, as Bella pretends to sleep, she observes the stranger as she took from the folds of her gown a brown, withered human hand. Next, she produced a candle, lit it from the fire, and placed it in the hand. Bella's heart beat so fast that she could hardly keep up the regular deep breathing of pretended sleep. But now she saw the stranger coming toward her with this ghastly chandelier, and she closed her lids tightly. She felt that the woman was bending over her, and that the light was passed slowly before her eyes, while these words were muttered in the strange masculine voice that had first roused her suspicions. Let those who rest more deeply sleep, let those awake their vigils keep. O hand of glory, shed thy light, direct us to our spoil tonight. The thief then slips away to unlock the inn's door and admit a band of accomplices. Bella rushes to the master's room to wake him, but he can't be roused. It's only when she dashes to the kitchen for some milk to douse the hand glory that the master emerges with his gun to drive away the intruders. Another literary mention of the Hand of Glory is in the um, delightfully comic 1837 collection of folk tales and ghost stories called the Inglesby Legends, which is written by the clergyman Richard Harris under the persona and pen name of Thomas Inglesby of Tappington Manor. This poem relates a story told by the nurse of uh, Tappington Manor and is called The Nurse's Story, The Hand of Glory. It begins... On the lone bleak moor at the midnight hour, beneath the gallows tree, hand in hand the murderers stand, by one, by two, by three. A witch on the scene issues some orders to her criminal accomplices. Now mount, who list, and close by the wrist, sever me quickly the dead man's fist. Now climb, who dare, where he swings in the air, and pluck me five locks of the dead man's hair. Later, Tis awful to see on that old woman's knee the dead shriveled hand as she clasps it with glee, and now with care the five locks of hair from the skull of the gentleman dangling up there with the grease and the fat of a black tom cat. She hastens to mix and to twist into wicks and one on the thumb and each finger to fix. Not only a burglary, but also a murder is committed using this charm. But the thieves are apprehended and quite tidily end up where we started. Uh, gibbet, the word we hear here is an old word for gallows. There's a black gibbet frowns upon Tappington Moor, where former black gibbet has frowned before. It is as black as black may be, and murderers there are dangling in air by one, by two, by three. 
And apparently this isn't all just uh, the stuff of folk tales and poems. A report quoted in the 1866 book Notes on the Folklore of the Northern Counties of England and the Borders by William Henderson relates... On the night of the 3rd January, 1831, some Irish thieves attempted to commit a robbery on the estate of Mr. Naper of Loch Crewe, County Meat. They entered the house armed with a dead man's hand with a lighted candle in it. He goes on to describe the powers attributed to the talisman, uh, powers which apparently failed because... The inmates, however, were alarmed, and the robbers fled, leaving the hand behind them. And there is also one existing specimen of a hand of glory displayed in the town museum of the northern English town of Whitby. In 1935, it was discovered by a stonemason hidden within a wall of a cottage in nearby Castleton, and presented to a historian who recognized it for what it was and bequeathed it to a museum. And I'll uh, post a photo of that one in the notes. You may be wondering about the um, odd, grandiose name applied to this charm. And as it turns out, it's based upon a misunderstanding of the French word for the mandrake plant. And that word, which we also use in English sometimes, is mandragora, which sounds a bit like the French phrase for hand of glory. On its own, that may seem like a bit of a stretch, but some may recall that um, in our Bottled Spirits episode, I happen to describe the folklore of the mandrake plant as something that grew beneath gallows where bodily fluids, namely semen, was supposed to have fallen from convicts as they were hung. I'd mentioned this in the context of the uh, German romantic writer Friedrich de la Montefouquet's novel, Galgenmännlein, or Little Gallows Man, which is uh, one of the German words for mandrake. In that novel, the creature grown from the hanged man's seed is kept in a bottle and, like a genie, can bring good luck. Generally throughout Europe, the mandrake with its strangely anthropomorphic root was considered not only uh, a magical charm, but one with some strangely human capacities or uh, awareness. In Germany, those who wished to receive the luck it could bestow were supposed to feed and dress it like a little doll, like the little gallows man that the Germans speak of. The connection with the Hand of Glory derives largely from its association with the Hanged Man and its function as a luck-bringing charm, but like the Burning Hand of Glory, the mandrake was also supposed to emit light by night. There's uh, quite a trove of unrelated mandrake lore, its use in love and fertility magic, the uh, deadly scream it emits when uprooted, uh, one which entailed the use of an expendable dog to dig them from the earth, and so on. But the connection with the gallows, which is our focus, seems to have been held primarily in Germany. Beyond the example covered in our previous episode, a couple other German novels focus on this aspect. The 1911 German novel Aurauna, uh, which is, um, comes from another German word for mandrake, is a sort of early science fiction story by Hans-Heinz Evers, one which describes the results of an experiment in which a prostitute is impregnated with the semen of a hanged man. The female child conceived, uh, named Aurauna, is a soulless, sexually voracious, and perverse creature who eventually avenges herself on her scientist creator. 
Though little known here, Algrana was uh, made into a classic silent film with the professor played by uh, Paul Wegener, who played the golem in the film of that name, and was then uh, remade as a talkie only two years later in 1930, and again in 1952 with Eric von Stroheim in the uh, role of the professor. Algrana. Ein Film vom Publikum mit beispielloser Spannung erwartet. The uh, 1952 version uh, changes the uh, hanged corpse uh, sperm donor to a convict on death row and plays all that aspect down. And uh, the insemination and sexual perversity were largely eliminated, at least in censored versions of the 1928-1930 film released abroad. But still, somehow, versions of the story emphasizing Algorana's uh, sexuality have remained in German culture as a sort of um, a titillating storyline in erotic uh, comics and films. We've nearly reached the end of our show, but I didn't want to close with the mandrake and leave you on a distasteful note, contemplating the dripping privates of a hanged man. So I thought a cheery song might be better. I mean... Yes, it is about hanging, but it's a hanging at which the condemned man goes out with a song and a dance. It's called Macpherson's Rant. Farewell, ye dungeons dark and strong. Farewell, farewell to ye. Macpherson's life will no be long on yonder Actually, the song is more widely known as Macpherson's Lament, but I didn't want to give the wrong impression. As you can hear in the music, it's more triumphantly defiant, or even jolly, actually. It's supposed to have been written by Jamie Macpherson himself on the eve of his execution in 1700. Macpherson was renowned for his strength, swordsmanship, and skill on the fiddle. But most importantly, he was an outlaw with a code of honor and one respected by the common folk. The song embodies the same sort of uh, bravery in the face of death that was cheered by those uh, crowds at Tyburn. Jamie McPherson was the illegitimate son of a gentleman and a tinker or gypsy woman. Upon the death of his father, he joined his mother's people, wandering through the land, buying and selling horses, and engaging in some less legitimate business. But even as a thief, it was his uh, code of honor that uh, ended him, refusing to rob the estate of an aristocrat who had died while his uh, wife and children were away mourning. Macpherson fell afoul with one of his own men, who betrayed him to authorities. He was captured and charged with the crime of simply being what was then called an Egyptian, or Gypsy, which uh, could designate either an ethnic Romani person or the uh, culture of the uh, roving people of Scotland, the travelers or tinkers. In the ballad and legend, when he's brought to the gallows, he dances and plays his fiddle, and then offers it to any man who would play it at his wake. When none came forward, he smashes it. The mute instrument is still preserved in the uh, Macpherson Clan Museum in Newtonmore, Scotland. And the uh, ever-defiant Macpherson was said to have bested the hangman by throwing himself from the ladder before it could be pulled away. 
But sadly, uh, Jamie McPherson's life needn't have ended on the gallows that day. A writer assumed to be delivering a rumored reprieve had been sighted within a short distance. But those who wished him dead pushed forward the hands of the village clock and the chime rang before the reprieve could be delivered. Now that's it for our episode, but not our examination of the fate of those upon the gallows. As it turns out, there are things worse than death, which we'll explore next time. Meanwhile, I hope not to lose any of you and that your village clock chime does Uh, I'm going to skip the usual formalities this time to give you a little information on the uh, Patreon rewards enjoyed by those who help pay for the uh, 100 plus hours of work that goes into each episode. So, uh, let's see, Ryan Luliano says, Each reward tier draws you deeper into a richly constructed and mysterious world with Mr. Ridenauer as your guide. Uh, Bailey DeVoe says, I love receiving emails every time a post goes up on Patreon. It's always full of fun, fascinating information that feeds my curiosity. Definitely the most fun thing I receive in my email inbox. And Jason Yudas says... The extra posts on the Patreon feed add a deeper dimension to the show's topics, while the extra episode is perfect for weird and highly amusing bedtime listening. And Ricardo M... Each tier rewards expand on the podcast, unveiling new paths to the disturbing and fascinating world of folklore and horror, and Mr. Dreidenauer's extra readings and episodes, soundscapes and whatnot, as well as other rewards, add up to the complete and unique bone and sickle experience. And from John Somerville. The rewards make me feel like an insider instead of a fool who doesn't know they're soon to be locked inside a seasonal wicker monument. Wise listeners all, and thanks to all of you for your kind comments, and of course I want to thank our newest patrons, Rowan Gray, Nash Hot, Kevin George, Heather Oakthorne, Michelle Sibald, and Bridget Casey. This show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.